Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, you're very welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, in the course of the current crisis, we've seen a number of doctors of one hue or another arrive at considerable prominence in what I suppose you might call the public square. That applies to nobody, I would suggest, as much as Tony Houlihan, the Chief Medical Officer at the Department of Health. We see him nightly chairing the media conference at which the latest statistics for infections and deaths from the virus are transmitted to the public, a task I'm sure is not easy for anybody. But who exactly is this Mr Houlihan? How did he arrive at his current station? And I suppose, does he carry any baggage? To answer some of those questions, I'm joined by the Irish Examiner's Catherine Shannon, who has spent a considerable amount of her career reporting on health matters. Catherine, you're welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nick. Catherine, little incident happened there, I suppose, now it's over a week ago, just at one of the conferences, and I think it was captured on camera and all, and it was Tony O'Holohan in the course of answering some questions from the journalist there. He turned to his colleague beside him and said... Uh, I feel a bit funny, I think, was the specific uh, phrase. And then we'd heard he'd been taken to hospital. Um, it might be a slight exaggeration, but I'll say it anyway. Did a nation hold its breath after that uh, minute? Yes, I would say so. I mean, he has been the public face of the government's response to the pandemic crisis. And he's sort of become almost as um, routine as the Angelus in our lives at this stage. Uh, he comes out every evening and he gives us the latest stats. Um, you know, he tells us what the case figures are, where they think we're going, and continues to give us the type of advice he thinks is essential to sort of flatten the curve, as they say, in relation to, to this terrible virus. So people have come to depend on him, I think, and, and they look forward to hear, well, not so much look, looking forward to hearing what he says, but are anxious to hear what he has to say, because they know he's a doctor uh, he seems to be on top of his game and he never seems to get into a flap at any stage. So when you're in a kind of situation like this, you want somebody who's clear thinking and clear headed, who can put across the facts uh, clearly and succinctly and can relate to the public, basically. And he seems to have been doing a pretty good job at that. So as you say yourself, when he appeared to fall ill and went off to a Dublin hospital and had a series of tests, everyone was rightly concerned that, well, you know, he's the guy leading our response. Where do we go from here? And what if he has COVID-19? Because we've seen in other countries what happened when people uh, kind of leading the response to the crisis were taken ill themselves. Yeah, and I suppose like some people who, who arrive in the public sphere fairly suddenly, he, he's entered uh, the culture to some extent. There, there's a slot there, I think, in RT Radio where they, they do the, the Roddy Doyle's Two Points sketch and uh, he was mentioned in that and he was, <laughs> from recollection, he was described as being a Bose supporter for, for those unfamiliar with soccer and particularly with Dublin soccer clubs, that's Bohemians, uh, on the basis of the size of his head, I think. And uh, one of the, 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 the two uh, characters having the points described him as one of the lads 
um, he wouldn't necessarily come across as one of the lads, I would suggest, Catherine. No, but I mean, it's it's some achievement at the same time to make it into, uh, you know, such a kind of um, interesting element of popular culture as Roddy Doyle's sketch, was, which has been going for a couple of years now, but they've brought it from the theatres onto, onto the radio. And at, at this time, they're calling it uh, two pints during the time of coronavirus. So, yeah, T- Tony Holland came up and um, I think it was more the shape of his head because, you know, they call Manchester United fans the pointy head fans, I think. So they were right. discussing that. But they said at the end of it, uh, yeah, and the phrase that Brendan O'Connor himself, who who plays that sketch during his show at the weekend, said had really uh, stood out for people was that expression, one of the lads. Now, when you look at his background and when you look at where he is now, it would seem to me that he's probably not one of the lads at all. Um People that I spoke to that would have inside knowledge of the workings of the department, you know, while they all described him as, you know, a very pleasant guy, very knowledgeable, very relatable. At the same time, he sort of stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Um, The other kind of maybe deputy CMOs that might have been in the department. I mean, he came in as a deputy CMO in 2001. That's chief medical officer. That's right. The chief medical officer. And people would say that, you know, he stood out from day one, that he shone. And then if anyone was going to go places, it was going to be Tony Holland. So when Mary Harney brought him in in 2008 as the chief medical officer, uh, nobody was surprised. Where is he from, Catherine? Well, my understanding is that he was born in Dublin and moved at a fairly young age to Limerick. He went to Monoline National School. And again, I came across somebody who'd been in school with him at that stage of his life. And they said his nickname, this is probably not widely known, but his nickname at the time was uh, Hula Hoops. And that right. the other thing they remembered about him was that he wore stripy T-shirts a lot. Now, that's all I can tell you about his primary school education. Can you apply any significance to the wearing of stripy T-shirts a lot? Well, I mean, my only kind of immediate image of stripy T-shirts is within the uh, justice system. But I really don't know. <laughs> maybe Dennis the Menace. Maybe, right, uh, right, right. you know, where's Wally? Who knows? Right. Um, and he, he went on there. He studied he studied medicine in University College Dublin. He graduated in 1991. And after that, he trained in general practice and subsequently uh, specialised in public health medicine and got a master's in public health medicine, I think it was, in 1996. Um, interesting anecdote about when he was in pre-med told by Maurice Houston in the Irish Times a couple of years ago, around about the time he was promoted to the job of uh, CMO, was that he, at that stage, had only had one brush with hospitals in his life. It was as a result of breaking a leg during a soccer match, and he had to wait a week for surgery to have uh, pins put into his leg because the operating theatres at the time were under such pressure he couldn't be slotted in before then. So that was an early experience with our health service. Waiting a week for a, an operation like that's a pretty long time, I'd say. It's certainly a, a, an experience. The 80s weren't a great time for the health service, as we know. No, not at all. And you mentioned he was playing soccer. He also has an interest in GA. Temple Oak Sink Street, I think, is his local club. Yes, and Falls, if that's the correct pronunciation, um, for hurling and football. That is really by virtue of just keeping an eye on his tweets. So he would be tweeting uh, out comments in relation to those two clubs and saying, you know, I think that he's looking forward to a time when they can all be back on the sidelines again. Um, somebody also told me he did underage coaching. Um, so, yeah, may, maybe the Roddy Doyle sketch had him uh, pinned as the wrong kind of sports supporter that instead of Bose 
it's actually GAA. And a couple of people have expressed surprise to me at that, actually. I, I don't know why, but... I'd suggest to you, from living in Dublin myself, and the, the you can just see it by the success of the Dublin team, the GA in Dublin has been transformed over the last 20 years. It is now a very broad and wide church. So all sorts of people who perhaps you might... Um, ordinarily have put down as perhaps being a soccer uh, type of environment or even a rugby one, a lot of them are, are in the GA these days. Professionally, Catherine, um, he came in, as you said, under Mary Harney. And was he there then when Mary Harney brought in the cancer care strategy? Yeah, to be honest, um, you know, I was I was telling you that he kind of had Sean within the department and um, he used to be sent out to bat before he was made chief medical officer on things like primetime or maybe news bulletins. And he always performed pretty well, is my understanding, uh, you know, in terms of he was he was fairly media savvy. So when Mar- Mary Harney was in there uh, in health from 2004 to 2011, uh, she had a lot of challenges uh, at the time. And one of those was to introduce a proper cancer strategy. Now, kind of the buzzword internationally at the time was cancer control control strategies. And they wanted to do that here because we had cancer services being delivered in about 30 hospitals at the time. There was really a lack of standardization. There was a lack of equity of access. You know, how good the care and treatment you got could kind of largely depend on your postcode or how whether you're at the hospital you attended was well resourced or not. It wasn't really working very well. Um, our figures probably weren't great internationally in terms of outcomes. And then you had the Port Leash uh, breast cancer scandal in around that time as well. If you remember, there was nine women um, who were given an incorrect diagnosis. They were told they didn't have breast cancer and they did. So there was a lot of pressure to reform the cancer services at the time. So uh, Tony Holhan was very proactive in this regard and he had a very good grasp of it as a public health doctor. Um, So Mary Harney, if you remember, brought over Professor Tom Keane from Canada to reorganise our cancer services into eight centres of excellence. And she knew She'd have a bit of a job selling this, I suppose, to other medics on the ground, you know, as you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Medicine can be as political as anything else. So uh, Tony was known to be able to take stands. You know, he wasn't afraid to have a view. He, She reckoned he was her guy for bringing medics into a room and knocking their heads together and kind of explaining why the strategy was really essential to overhaul our, our cancer system. Uh, and so, you know, that would be one of the main reasons I think that he was brought in. Also, he was very strong on primary care. He understood the importance of primary care of people being treated outside of hospitals, you know, in terms of it being, um, I suppose, earlier intervention and also being less expensive. So he was, um, you know, the government had promised, I think, around the 2001 that they'd set up 600 primary care teams, which would really, you know, deliver primary care in a way that would function well. And, you know, six years later, there was very few primary care teams set up. So she was very anxious to drive that forward as well. So there were two areas that he would have um, a lot of expertise in. So I think they would have been um, two of the reasons that Mary Harney would have brought him in at the time, along with having proved himself as being media savvy. Yeah. And you mentioned the, the cancer care. And I, I think it's very interesting that he had such an involvement in that because some people would suggest in terms of uh, areas of the health service, one of the areas that work very well now is the cancer care strategy, but when it was brought in, it was highly controversial because, as you said, initially there was about 30 centres and they they brought this down to about eight. Now, I remember in particular, there was a major issue around Sligo, a suggestion that they should have a centre there, but Tom Keane held his ground. And uh, the interesting thing was that he, as somebody who came in from the outside, held his ground and also 
to be fair to Mary Harney, that he was backed by Mary Harney at the time and that there was a lot of resistance to that strategy because it meant a lot of upheaval for people. And as you say, Tony Holohan was, um, had a prominent role in uh, bringing that in as well. Yeah, and I suppose the whole idea of him being very good as well at public health messaging, which obviously we're seeing on a nightly basis now, would have been very important in that respect. I mean, they had they had to sell it to the public as well. Um, you know, obviously locally there would have been people concerned that they were losing local services, and you know that that always kind of gets people out on the streets if they think their local hospital services are being downgraded. So they needed somebody also who would be good at selling that public health message and you know he he's proven himself as being well capable of doing that most of the time okay and there was another not as happy you might say in some ways another um health episode where he had a role and that was in the cervical cancer strategy and everything that emerged from that yeah well i suppose that was kind of what we describe as an omni shambles really from nearly start to finish um, you know, the manner in which the whole cervical check controversy emerged into the public sphere in the first place with basically Vicky Phelan letting us all know about it, even though, you know, the, the state had tried to gag her with a gagging clause in her settlement. But I mean, after that, then you had the kind of daily drip feed of information coming out from the HSE in terms of, well, how many women have been affected or how many women know they've been affected or how many women were part of an audit or weren't part of an audit and, you know, confusion going on on a daily basis. Then you had, you know, the health committees and the PAC getting involved and Tony Holden. Public Accounts Committee, yeah. Public Accounts Committee. Um, like early days in, in the first week of May, I think Tony Holden appeared before um, the health committee and kind of set out very clearly what his understanding of us had happened, um, explained to people kind of how the system worked, apologised to people who had been affected and seemed to do a good job. And I emailed uh a lot of the documentation in relation to the exchanges that went on at that time. And I got the um, telephone text messages between Tony Holohan and Simon Harris uh, again at the time. And right after that meeting, uh, he got a text from Simon Harris saying, uh, Tony, you were a tour de force at yesterday's meeting. Basically, you know, I don't know what I do without you. But like within a kind of space of a week or so, the tables had kind of turned because at a subsequent public accounts committee hearing, uh, it emerged, if you remember, those HSE memos came to light whereupon there had been letters drawn up that were meant to go to the women that were caught up in this controversy. But at the end of the letters, it said words like pause the letters, uh, you know, let's get a proper reactive media strategy prepared for when we see headlines saying screening failed to diagnose me. It said, you know, let's get advice from the solicitors. And even though it's probably in retrospect, what a lot of companies do in terms of crisis management, when you saw these sentences written on a memo, you know, and, and it seems to show so little disregard for all the women and families that were affected by the scandal, it really went down like a ton of bricks um, among the public. Um, and then shortly after that, within a matter of days, it emerged that Tony Holohan had known about the existence of those memos since 2016. Now we're talking about this PAC meeting going on in 2018. So it was like, oh, my God, you know about this. Why didn't you? Why wasn't it made public at the time? So the department released, you know, a series of documents, over 100 documents afterwards, basically clearing Leo Varadkar and Simon Harris of, of knowing for two years also. Um, it showed that they didn't know. And the buck stopped with Tony Holohan. So at that time, I'd say 
he was pretty lucky to hang on. And some of the views expressed by some of the people I've spoken to in relation to that said, um, yeah, it was, you know, basically himself and Jim Breslin, the department secretary general at the time, were under fierce pressure. Um, you know, the politicians were kind of looking to save their own skins. And if anyone was going to be thrown under a bus, it looked likely that it would be himself and or Jim Breslin. But he survived it. And right now, if you said a bad word about Tony Holohan, as one colleague pointed out to me, it's basically like attacking Santa. Yeah, yeah. And at that time, Catherine, you mentioned that uh, text that Simon Harris sent to him saying Tour de Force. Did relations subsequently become strained between them? Yeah, again, some of that FOI material would suggest that relations were strained. But, you know, it's like, you know, you're only as good as your last good news story. <laughs> so, you know, on any given day, if, you know, the kind of proverbial was hitting the fan and politicians were, you know, coming out in an unfavourable light, then Tony was, um, you know, not your number one man. But, you know, if he did something then that kind of, turn the situation around then you know the, the plaudits were being lauded on him and and that's again something that was pointed out in relation to this controversy in Tony Holhen and um, other people in the sphere of public health you know have kind of cautioned that you know we've all come to rely so heavily on him in terms of telling us what's happening and taking his advice that it almost seems to be a one-man show no I, I do believe he's a team player because that has been said to me but maybe our perception of him is as a, a one-man show and that if anything goes wrong in this and you know there's going there'll always be post-mortems afterwards where we kind of see what we could have done better who will come out the worst in this and you know will it be him who was delivering the message up front or will it be the politicians in the background who are supposed to be making the decisions who knows well that's an interesting angle actually because as you say I think that you hear some politicians, I think somebody said to you, according to a piece you wrote in The Examiner, some politicians they've taken to habitually saying that they're taking Tony Holohan's advice. And it's nearly as if um, everything is over to him. If things don't go wrong, nothing to do with us, Go, we're only the messenger boys from this public health doctor. That's a bit of a precarious position to be in. It is. I suppose there's a couple of things you have to look at. Like, his, in his role, he is the senior medical advisor to the government. He is the senior advisor on public health. So he has to do that. I mean, it's part of what he's qualified to do. But, and I suppose the politicians have to take his word on that because, well, interestingly, Leo Varadkar does have a medical background, so maybe he doesn't have to take his word all the time on it. But for people like Simon Harris, they don't have medical expertise. So you're going to have to rely on him. And, th and then it does become possible to say, in Tony Holland's, it's Tony Holland's advice. But, you know, I think politicians are very clever also, you know, as we know. And that, uh, there is always going to be a certain amount of, um, shall we say, ass covering going on uh, so that when we all look back at things and see what was handled right and what was handled wrong, well, whose fault was it? Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that whole thing in relation to this pandemic, Catherine, because if you look look to the left of us and to the right, to put it that way, in the UK and the US, I mean, you can see in both instances that uh, that issue of between the scientists and the politicians, that um, if things are not as bad as perhaps at some stage are predicted to be, the politicians will take uh, credit for leadership. But if they turn out to be worse, 
and we see their daily Donald Trump's um, daily press conference, which I have to say are a sight to behold. They're just something else altogether. Purely from a point of view of safari, watching the thing, it's absolutely bananas. But that's why it's fascinating. And you have, on the other hand, now Boris Johnson, unfortunately, the poor man is in a bad way at the moment and hopefully he'll get better. But while he has been struck by it, you have some supporters coming out and talking about him in Churchillian terms. And yet, at the same time, if things turn out a lot worse, I can well see it's the um, the science advice that they took is that's going to, uh, everyone's going to fall back on that. Yeah, well, again, when you put yourself forward for that role and somebody said to me that, you know, Tony isn't uh, backwards about coming forwards. When you put yourself forward for a role like that, um, you and, and they've also said to me that he's quite political and he has a view. And if he understands how the political system works, then he knows that that's a possible fallout for him. But it is a very tough role to be in. And when you look at uh, Fauci, his counterpart in the US, uh, receiving death threats and being under um, 24 hour personal protection, you know, you're kind of thinking, OK, maybe Tony Holland's job isn't so bad. Um, but yeah, it is a precarious role to be in. And and, and then, you, you know, T- Tony Holland does seem to be doing well. And if you look across the water, as you said, it's Scotland and how the Scottish minister had to resign. Like that was. That was over visiting her uh, holiday home, wasn't it? Yeah. She had, you know, been out on, in, on the airwaves a couple of times urging people, you know, stay at home. Don't be if you have second homes, don't visit them. You know, don't be going on holidays. You know, it's not it's not a time for going on holidays. And then to be caught twice. Uh, breaking her own rules. So, like, if you compare it, compare it to what happens there, you know, there's no comparison, really. I mean, he's been very um, firm about his advice from day one. And, you know, I think people are listening to him. He is. And as as you say, like, his his status, as you said, <laughs> if you were to say anything against him now, it would be like saying something against Santa Claus. As you say, when you compare that to the politicisation and the attitude to Fauci, who comes across, I have to say, in a really serious fella in uh, in the USA. It is it is quite interesting in that regard. Back to in terms of himself, Catherine, he has just through the nature of the job acquired this profile. Now he has acquired, obviously, again, I think it is fair to say, uh, a status among the general public. Could you see him reverting back to his role, which in a broad sense is very low profile? Whenever we get through this, or would he be the kind of fella who might? branch out, head for the private sector, head for something more high profile or quite possibly more more lucrative? Well, I mean, he's been in the job a long time, if you think about it. It's since 2001. Um, he's had his controversies. He's been under severe pressure before. You know, if there was ever a good time to bow out, it looks to me like it would have been around the time of the cervical check controversy because you know, rightly or wrongly, he took a huge amount of flack during that controversy. And, you know, it must have been a time of enormous pressure to be working there. Uh, And, you know, so many people trying to save their own skins also. So I think if he withstood that and stayed on afterwards, um, you know, it's obviously a job that he must enjoy doing. I really don't think you could put yourself through that or that you would be able to cope with the stress of what's going on now unless you really loved it. And even, you know, to kind of seem to put his own health at risk recently as well. Um, And, you know, I think for a lot of people inside that kind of political bowl, it's very addictive. Um, And there's a, you know, if you remember Alan Kelly giving a very controversial interview some years back saying power is a drug. Um, I I think within that whole political fishbowl that they operate in, um, that 
you know, I suppose you're feeling pretty powerful. You're feeling pretty sure of yourself and you're doing a very important job. And maybe it's it's not that easy to step away from it. But, you know, maybe that's just a personality thing for people as well. OK, and that's Tony Holland, as, as you say, Catherine. Interesting man, definitely. And somebody who's come to some prominence now and it will be interesting to see where he goes from here. A, a related aspect in one way, Catherine, um, that has arisen, and that is we've seen now temporarily that the uh, private hospitals have been taken into the public system in order to deal with this coronavirus. And some people have been saying that this could hasten the advent of a single-tier system, particularly as envisaged by uh, Slanche Care. Would Tony Holan in that role have any influence or any input towards moving along Slanche Care, or would that be very much in the political arena? Well, I mean, when he came into his role initially, it was it had been an advisory role prior to that. So the chief medical officer was an advisor. He's still an advisor, but his executive functions were changed at that time to include public or patient safety and quality and also to include public health and health promotion. So, so he is very active in terms of policy development in those areas. In terms of the private hospitals, I'm not sure um, how his role would overlap in that respect, other right. than that he is an expert he is a doctor and he has opinions, but I don't know if he'd have any input in policy formation. I mean, slide to care is, is the policy at the moment and it's supposed to be going forward, which does envisage a single tier system. Um, but whether his role extends to that, I don't know. And apart from any input he might have, just from yourself, from your own experience working in the health area, do you think that this temporary flattening of the tour tier system if you want to put it that way will hasten's launch care will it lead us closer to a situation where access is according to need rather than ability to pay or will we just be back to slow train coming as it seems to have been prior to this everybody's in favor of launch care but it's like was it saint augustine i don't mind referencing the right saint there uh Please make us pure, Lord, but not today. It's some time in the future. Wh- which would you, uh, which would you say we're going to head towards after we get over this? I would have said it would never happen. I would have said it would never happen because um, it's too entrenched. Because you know, over half our population has private health insurance. Because consultants stand to benefit from it because hospitals profit from it, the private hospitals, and because public hospitals even stand to lose from it if it was taken out on account of them getting payments for the private hospitals that use the public hospital system. But then it happened overnight, essentially. But I think it only happened because there were no vested interests in this situation. In this situation, the private hospitals were willing to step up to the plate for a defined time. Now, in saying that, we have no defined time anymore. They have signed up for an initial three months, but who knows how long the pandemic will go on. My understanding is that, you know, that can be extended depending on how this pans out. But, you know, they've only signed up on the understanding that it isn't forever and that it will go back to them being the for-profit hospitals that they are giving patients who may otherwise be donkey's years on waiting lists in the public system 
an opportunity to get treated faster, albeit you have to pay for that luxury. And albeit you may not be more in need than the person next door to you who can't afford to pay for it. Like ideally, it should be a system where we're based on need and not ability to pay. But there are so many vested interests in this stage, at this stage, in keeping the two-tier system afloat that only something like a pandemic could have eliminated it overnight. But I cannot see it being eliminated indefinitely. Yeah, that's interesting, Catherine. I mean, the the ultimate um, outcome of what you're saying is that irrespective of the will of the people as expressed through all parties in the Dáil and as composed in the Slánche Care Report, which is an all-committee report, ostensibly what you're looking at there is, effectively, the country wants a single-tier health system. But in your opinion, because of the vested interests, those who stand to gain and those who stand to lose, it will not happen. Well, make it's like this. Ideologically, I believe that you should be treated based on your need. But if in the morning I was told you have to go on a three year waiting list before you can get uh, surgery for your hip, I want to be able to pay for that and speed it up. I want to have the choice. I'm fortunate in that I do have the choice, but I definitely don't want to be in pain on a waiting list for three years. And that just seems to be the way that's the way it's pitched to us anyway. That's the way it's sold to us. And we're too scared, I think, you know, not to take it out. So I just can't see it happening. Isn't, isn't that interesting also in the context that the, the, the recent election, the exit polls showed that the thing people were most concerned about was health. And I'd venture to suggest, and like yourself, I'm fortunate enough that I have the choice as well, but I would venture to suggest that the people who are most concerned about health are those who don't have and in vast majority of instances can't afford health insurance and that those of us who are fortunate enough to have insurance are not concerned in that regard to any great extent at all. Yeah, but I mean, what else do you expect? I mean, you know, if we, if we know we don't have to wait, we don't have to join the public waiting the system where, you know, it's almost impossible to get an outpatient appointment, let alone become an inpatient I mean even if in leap the leap from one to the other of those just takes so long to, to even go from your GP referral to actually getting a consultant appointment to actually being seen and then maybe to get an elective surgery date a couple of years down the line like you know who wants that and, and like do, I mean all they I don't know how they can do this unless they just legislated and said that's it lads we're not going back to the other system I don't see any amount of a negotiation that will make it otherwise. I cannot see consultants giving up the right to private practice. The private hospitals, it's, the, it's their commercial entities. Why, why would they give it up? And, you know, yeah, we'd all love to say we don't want to pay for health insurance. Yeah, great, two, our single tier system. But like, it's so entrenched at this stage. I really don't know how you could unpick it. I mean, I know Slide to Care is talking for five, ten years, but I, I just, it's too, I, to me, there's too many vested interests. Do you think there's any way that the public service could be improved to the extent that it could deliver a service that would be some way in the range of the, the, the type of service you get in private healthcare? Yeah, I do, because we're seeing it at the moment. I mean, look at it. Like our problems are mainly within 
well, not enough investment in the primary care system, and and then then the problem is kind of building momentum and ending up in the, in the hospital system. But like what you have at the moment on account of this is almost a health service that functions in the way that they've been saying for years it should be functioning, in that don't go to your emergency department unless you really need to go there. Nobody's going to emergency departments at the moment. No, some people would suggest, Catherine, and that, and that front, some people would suggest that that's not necessarily a good thing, that you have people who are not going to the emergency department who should be going. No, I understand that. And I know there's a fear factor keeping people away. But what I'm saying to you is, unintentionally, an unintended consequence of this is that we're not seeing people on trolleys. We're not having overcrowded emergency departments. We are having the sickest patients being treated. We are having them being treated on the basis of need. We are pumping resources into the health service. We have increased you know, the number of intensive care beds, which doctors have been calling for for years. We have got way more staff in the system than what we had because people have you know, responded to Ireland's call, essentially. We have you know, all the campaigning that the HSE has done over the years to bring medics back home, to bring nurses back home. They've come home of their own accord for this. So, you know, we had the situation down in Cavan at the moment where you have an outbreak on a couple of wards of COVID-19 and, um, you know, the, the larger hospitals within that hospital group staff willingly transferring down there to help them, as was envisaged under the hospital group system anyway. So you actually have a lot of things happening within the system right now on account of the pandemic that they've been trying to bring in for years. And again, like the single tier system legislation sort of, have just happened in a matter of weeks. So so in a way, this has shown us we can do things, we can resource the areas that need to be resourced, we can all pull together, we can get people to come back from abroad. But it took this and does it last beyond it? Yeah, very interesting it is, Catherine, and it's something that we'll, we're going to have to see how it pans out. But now and once, hopefully, things get back to some level of normality, and whether or not we can take the good out of what is, for so many people, a horrific time. Catherine Shannon, thank you very much for joining us. That's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you for listening. You can download or subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, and usual platforms. And you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford.examiner.ie or on the Twitter machine at, at mickcliff. See you soon. Music.